0: Uh, permission to record if you're set up for it.
1: I am recording.
0: Great. Wonderful.
1: There's Andrea in her new sweater.
0: <laughs> Hi, Andrea. Hi there. Uh, I have lots to say to you but in, in, in response to your emails. But um, Should we
2: stay on the call afterwards or are you usually ready to lie down after these?
0: Um, we could we could uh do either i, I could just answer your your emails anyway i uh, just wanted you to know that that uh yeah i really appreciate and uh intend to follow up on on this okay great uh, yeah let's talk yeah all right well welcome everybody and uh it's good to see you and uh i will now have a look at the questions here, and we can go ahead and begin. Let's see, where are, oops, not there. There they are, okay. All right, so, All right, I just going to, I'm going to begin with the most recent questions. Um just because that's in the order they're presented on my screen. And hopefully I'm gonna get through everybody's questions. So uh first question is uh from John Bash uh, concerning uh uh the use of alcohol and cannabis. Uh, and the fifth precept, um, and you're here, John. Hi, so thank you for your question. Um, just to read your question in your view, can consuming alcohol or cannabis be reconciled with the precept discouraging intoxicating substances. I found light or moderate alcohol to allow me to more function allow me to more function comfortably and even effectively in social situations and decrease anxiety even though it does dull the mind. Yes, well, John, first of all, wouldn't you rather be able to deal with uh, anxiety or even not have the anxiety and feel more comfortable in social situations? Uh, I'm sure you would. And um, without having to use alcohol, I'm sure you you would prefer that. You say, even though it does the mind, uh, dulls the mind. Since you're here, let me ask you, are you referring to in the way that you use it, do you experience the dullness of the mind, or you just mean in principle?
3: Uh, Yeah, I do experience that dullness.
0: Okay, okay, and uh, I'm not surprised at that answer because the consumption of alcohol for that purpose, that purpose usually doesn't get achieved until there's a certain amount of dullness. So um, what I would suggest is that you try to um, practice as much mindfulness as you can in those situations and that you try to uh, uh, wean yourself away from this very convenient uh, and Highly socially acceptable way of dealing with uh, anxiety, anxiety, and, and uh, difficult social situations. Now, first of all, there's a certain amount of alcohol that you can consume. You know, you you develop a tolerance to alcohol, and you can get to a place where you can consume a glass of wine or beer over a period of time without without it actually producing any. Discernible degree of dullness. This is widely recognized by law enforcement. That's why they there's a certain uh, uh, blood alcohol level that they measure, uh, in, uh, and that's why there are rules like you know if you drink uh, if you drink one beer, or one drink, or one uh, a glass of wine per hour, uh, you're not considered to be impaired. And I think that that uh, uh, this, this would be noticeable to you. So, what I suggest you do is practice mindfulness uh, of the social discomfort when you experience it. If you do choose, then you have a choice then of continuing to be mindful of it and uh, try it and accepting of it and trying to work with it. Um, or you may you may choose to go ahead. And have a drink to help ease things, but if you're going to do that, then be mindful of the effects that it's having on you. See if there isn't perhaps a level where um, you don't experience the dullness. And like I say, see if you can get to the get to the place where you can uh, accept the anxiety and the social. The, the discomfort you feel in certain social situations without, without dulling your mind, okay? But uh, the real answer to this is going to come through the process of med- meditation that leads to what I refer to as purifications, where you get to the root of what is producing this, uh, this discomfort in social situations, and uh, you deal with it. It's probably a pretty big thing, it probably has some pretty deep, deep roots. It may take you a while to deal with that. But the strategy that I suggest is um, uh, twofold. One is that you keep on meditating and uh, hopefully be able to deal with that as a purification and get over it that way. But in the meantime, you practice mindfulness in those situations and you also be mindful of of the aspects of uh, those situations um, to the degree that there's dullness of mind, be mindfulness of the dullness of mind and recognize it as something that you would prefer not to have. If you are actually being mindfulness, you uh, will realize that from time to time, you do or say things that uh, you might wish you had done differently afterwards. That's another aspect of the uh, negative aspect of the uh, uh, mind-dulling effect of alcohol, so use your mind mindfulness uh, in both a, a positive way and in a way of recognizing uh, that uh, that this is not the best coping mechanism. And and uh, yeah, uh, there's, there's a little. Go ahead.
3: I was just going to say thank you for that. Yeah. Appreciate it.
0: Yeah. Um, You also mentioned cannabis and um, let me say that if you've developed a very high degree of mindfulness um, then the effects of both alcohol and cannabis you can can observe them with a high degree of mindfulness uh, uh, much the way that you can be quite mindful uh, even though you are ill or tired or something like this now when you're when you're stages one through six, your ability to do that is is not going to be uh, very good but um, as as your metacognitive introspective awareness matures then uh, you you might use those substances in and uh, be able to maintain a high level of mindfulness in in the face of it. Uh, because uh, uh, it's been highly recommended by several doctors, I have been trying to use um, cannabis as part of the treatment for stage four cancer. Uh, I basically just uh, am, you know, it, it, to me, the the time that I'm under the influence of THC is uh, is time that uh, that's lost <laughs> from from the richness of living, and so I tend to use it only at night and when I'm sleeping. And they tell me, well, to really get the effects, you need to use it during the day. But I find that uh, uh, sometimes I can uh, explore it with mindfulness. Uh, and, um, I know I've had the experience in the past and maybe some of you are listening that, uh, it seems that, uh, that cannabis can, uh, open your mind up to ways of seeing things that, uh, you weren't aware of before and it can do this. Although when you reflect on these things afterwards, if you can remember them, sometimes you'll find that, uh, uh they're, they're valuable uh, insights into into your personality and the reason that you behave the way you do, and other times you'll find out that they're rather meaningless. So uh, I, I don't recommend cannabis as a primary means of self-exploration. Uh, other psychedelics, on the other hand, um, especially when used in a... Ceremonial context, um, you know. For example, you might attend an ayahuasca ceremony, or you might attend a Native American church ceremony with uh, uh, where peyote is used, um, or you might uh, attend a uh, mesa ceremony where uh, 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 San Pedro is used, and you might. Uh, it, it might be a nice complement to uh, the. Uh, Self exploration that's a part of the spiritual path and might provide, might help uh, you to help, help deepen your understanding of of the Dharma. Uh, these have been used as a part of the spiritual path for a very very long time, and I I think it's very very situation dependent. If you'll recall, uh, when the, in the early days of experimentation with uh, LSD, that um, uh, Ram Das uh, uh, Richard Alpert at that time, and uh, uh, or the other guy the, <laughs> I can't remember his name, one of the things that that they told everybody that was really important was set and setting when use, when using psychedelics and that is true, and I would say that set and setting that is most consistent with um with the Buddhist path is the uh, uh, ceremonial setting that's created by somebody who is very skilled and has been trained, uh, you know, uh, trained under a master in the use of these of these substances. I don't particularly recommend you trying to use these on your own because then you're just going to have uh, interesting experiences that don't necessarily uh, that aren't necessarily easily integrated into um, any larger understanding or uh, personal growth, right? So that might be a little bit of an unexpected answer from a meditation teacher, but uh, I, I, my uh, experience, uh, both my own and, and in discussions with other people, uh, I, I found this to be, Quite true. So hope that hope that makes sense to those of you who are listening to this. Um, that was that was really Michael Walsh's question was about other psychedelics. So, um, all right, next next thing we have here, Damien Foster. Are you here, Damien? Um, Quick scan, is <laughs> not to be, let's look at the question. Uh, using earplugs during sits is discouraged that I'm living in a very loud atmosphere almost continuously. Um, yes, using, uh, using earplugs when there is normal ambient noise is, uh, is strongly discouraged. Those normal ambient noises you know, birds chirping, dogs barking, kids laughing outside, refrigerators coming on and off, things like that. These can actually be very, very helpful to your meditation. So, trying to isolate yourself from sounds using earplugs is not a good idea. However, if you are in a loud atmosphere, uh, then, uh, as you described, then earplugs will be very appropriate. And if it truly is a loud atmosphere, even earplugs are not going to give you that. Uh, uh, total isolation from sound uh, and you'll have other sources of of extrospective stimulation. Uh, I see Adrian has uh, answered uh, has basically responded to Damien and uh, pointed out that he uses earplugs in exactly this way. He, He uses them when somebody is Playing the piano downstairs, and I assume he doesn't need to the rest of the time. Uh, Michael Walsh has another question about creativity and uh, mindfulness. Um, are you Are you here, Michael? Unfortunate. Um it's difficult to find a particular time of day that suits everyone to attend, isn't it? Uh, sorry you can't be here, Michael, but I will deal with your question anyway. Um, mindfulness and creativity are completely compatible, entirely compatible. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, it would greatly increase your creativity, whether you are a an artist or, quote, creative uh, uh, in, in your normal life anyway. It has to be some understanding. You say some scientific studies on creativity have shown that mind-wandering is vital to the creative process. They're not talking about the kind of mind-wandering that we're talking about in meditation. They're talking about when um, when your mind is not Um, what they're talking about is when creative uh, and inspirational ideas arise in consciousness when the mind isn't preoccupied with some other task. Um, There are famous instances of this. Uh, You know, um, the organic chemist uh, Koch Uh, discovered the uh, structure of the benzene ring. He'd been thinking about this for a long, long time and couldn't figure out uh, how these six carbon atoms could be linked together in a way that was consistent with everything that was known about chemistry. And then I believe it was after a Christmas dinner or something like that, he was sitting in a chair in a sort of half-awake, half-sleep process, and, and the answer sprang into his mind. He had a vision of six monkeys chasing each holding the tail of the other, running in a circle, and uh, he understood uh, the structure of the benzene ring from that. And there's a lot of incidents like that. A lot of people's creativity happens at unexpected times. But if you develop mindfulness, you're, you're increasing the uh, you're, you're increasing the power of your awareness and your introspective awareness in particular. Creative ideas come from the parallel crossing, a processing of large parts of your mind that are, in particularly when they are not uh, entrained in the uh, process that's associated with uh, um, problem-solving, um, reductionistic, uh, uh, and analytical kinds of, of activities which, um, which, is, which involves parts of, parts of the brain that are quite different than the parts that are the sources of novel ideas. Uh, the parts are, are basically in the, in the brain there's a lot of fluidity. Concepts aren't, aren't rigidly categorized. Uh, ideas and things have a fluidity and can shift from one to another. Which, by the way, is one of the things that we do see with the use of psychedelic substances as you develop mindfulness, you have much much greater your conscious experience has much much greater access to this kind of parallel processing that gives rise to creative inspiration and um, so uh, what what I've seen and and what I've heard from people who are create professional creatives that uh the, their mindfulness practice, their, their meditation practice that has increased their mindfulness, increases their creativity. Um, there's different kinds of creativity. Um, you know, architects and engineers uh, have a kind of creativity that is very much related to linear thinking and uh, um, analytical thinking. And they produce a lot of uh, uh, successful, but relatively mediocre and uh, uh, and, and not terribly uh, uh, novel uh, solutions to engineering and architectural problem but, uh, yeah problems on the other hand, there are some those engineers and architects who really stand out who produce something really novel and really uh, uh, aesthetically. Uh, value and valuable and functionally effective at, and structurally sound at the same time. Uh, you know, uh, these brilliant ones, they're the ones that are, are true creatives and they have, they have learned to tap into that parallel processing of the many parts of the mind that uh, take place outside of uh, the conscious process of focusing my attention. I have this problem to solve. How do I get from A to B? And they explore various linear tracks to reach there. Uh, so there's different kinds of creativity. But mindfulness will, will actually help both, but it is particularly valuable in that, um, that form of creativity that depends on novel thinking. On uh, novel uh, the, the novel solutions to uh, problems. Uh, so, so you couldn't be here, but I hope that that's a helpful answer. Um, Boris, are you here?
3: Yes, Chuldasan.
0: Oh, wonderful! Yeah. yeah, so good. Let's look at your your question here. Ah uh, yes you have some doubts about introspective awareness right? right you're able to do stage 5 and 6 techniques and so from that we you know you have concluded and of course we would conclude looking at that that well uh you you must have introspective awareness and for stage 6 you must have uh that introspective awareness must have a metacognitive component to it in order for it to be successful. That's what we would assume. Yet you say that uh, you are not aware of the functioning of your awareness. You don't see what happens in the background. And so, there's two possibilities One is that you have an expectation of what awareness is like um, that is preventing you from um, identifying awareness even though you're experiencing it. And you do make the statement that when my mental energy level begins to decrease, my awareness gives an order to correct for it. Well, how do you know that happens? um the other possibility is that um you've somehow trained yourself to achieve the goals without really having developed uh awareness to the to its full potential and um i'm going to go on the assumption that that may be the case and what i'm going to suggest is that you reread the first interlude on attention awareness very carefully so that you're really clear on what to expect. And then you spend time doing the four-step transition to the meditation object. Is that something that you have been doing? Have you, do you do that four-step transition? Just describe yes, for stage one?
3: And, uh, I enjoy doing it. I think uh, okay. I get the uh, expected results. So gradually transition from the very broad focus mm-hmm. uh, toward the nose.
0: Yeah. And so in the when you're doing that practice, is the difference between awareness and, and uh, attention clear when you're doing that practice?
3: I think, uh, yes, it is. What uh, my problem, my doubt is, uh, for example, I'm following the... Uh, dedicated practitioner course right now. And mm-hmm. uh, one of the teachers, Blake, I told about metacognitive or even introspective awareness, simple mm-hmm. introspective, as a field. So yes. I, I'm expecting to f- to perceive some, like I have a field of attention that is like uh, uh, before me. I, I'm, yeah. I'm expecting to have another field clearly perceived like behind me where I have a moment by moment awareness of different mental objects like thoughts or sounds, something that is uh, continuous and well perceived. But actually it's not what is happening. I have uh, just uh, like uh, uh, some moments of peripheral awareness and other moments there is, uh, I don't perceive it like uh, continuously. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm sure I have peripheral awareness, but right. I don't know if I have the quality of metacognitive uh, introspective awareness. That is mm-hmm. something more powerful, more continuous, and more uh, sharply perceived.
0: Now that, that, is, that is exactly what metacognitive introspective awareness is. Um, You, yeah. When we speak of the field of conscious awareness, maybe a couple of important things to, to note just to begin with is that you, anything that you pay attention to has first appeared in uh, your peripheral awareness. So if a thought arises and attention goes to it, you first became conscious of that thought and careful awareness. Same thing with sound and so on and so forth. And essentially what we're learning to do as we're proceeding through these stages is to keep attention from going to those uh, thoughts and sounds and whatever else in the background um, that that is arising. as we learn to to do this, going through the stages, yes, you become aware of there's a whole field of things that uh, that are going on simultaneously. I mean, have you sat and focused on some particular task? And uh, I recently posted a uh, uh, no, I, it might have been a private correspondence with somebody, but. You're sitting and you're, you're reading your email and you're answering your email. But at the same time, you're aware of your environment, things going on in your environment. And occasionally, you may pay attention to one of those. But mostly, you just know they're there. And uh, you know that they're there. If you do pay attention to them, you know that they're there before you paid attention to them. And when you bring your attention back to the task at hand, uh, you, you continue to be aware of them so examples that I would use is that uh, you know you're working on your email and there's a the sound of the refrigerator motor comes on and off in the next room uh, you're, you're aware of a dog sleeping in the corner uh, the neighbor's dog barks occasionally but you're so used to it that you don't direct your attention to it when it happens okay And then say your neighbor starts up his lawnmower in a part in his backyard where you can't hear it, but as he's running his mower back and forth he comes closer to your house or your apartment or wherever it is you're living and you become aware of the sound in the background. At some point it may become loud enough that you direct your attention to it and attention does its job. It says that is the lawnmower belonging to my neighbor and it's not important and you go back to focusing on your email but you were aware of it beforehand and you're aware of it afterwards. Now, what could be happening here is that you actually, uh, I, I, everyone has awareness, it's just a question of developing it. And developing it, uh, usually the different aspects of developing it uh, take care of themselves and it's not necessary to go into them in detail. But a really big part of it, of knowing a big part of knowing that you're conscious at all, no matter whether it's attention or awareness, is your ability to recollect it a moment later, five minutes later, so on and so forth. There there's a lot of content in awareness. And so it doesn't it doesn't remain in memory for all of that for all that long, unless there are particular things in your awareness. And if you direct your attention to something in awareness, then you're much more likely to remember it a few moments later or even a long time later. Um, there can be certain things that arise in awareness that uh, a sound triggers a thought, thought triggers emotion. It becomes a big deal. You may succeed in not paying attention to it, but you'll remember that it happened. But most of the contents of awareness are not... They're not incorporated into the story of my life as it's unfolding right now because there's just there's too much information for it so it may be that you are just that you're being aware but you're not uh, uh, it's not it's not registering strongly enough in your short-term memory for you to know that you're aware uh, moment by moment and the interesting thing about I'm speaking of awareness, but this is true of consciousness as a whole. Susan Blackmore um, uh, teaches consciousness studies, and one of the exercises she has her students do in classes, asks themselves periodically during the day, am I conscious now? And after a while, I start coming back with the answer, well, no, I, I wasn't. Well, it wasn't that they weren't conscious. Uh, it was that they don't have any recollection of having been conscious, I mean somebody ever said a penny for your thoughts, and the instant they said it, you can 't for the life of you remember what you were, you know you were thinking about something, but you can 't remember what it was so one aspect of awareness and it 's an important one or it needs to be developed is is knowing in the moment that you're awareness and that you're aware and, and knowing uh, on an ongoing uh, basis. Because this is a, this is an important part of peripheral awareness. <laughs> peripheral awareness can still serve the purpose of letting you know that you're about to lose uh, attention to a uh, a gross distraction, without you know, and and what you have what consciously registers is that oh a subtle dis- uh, a gross uh, a subtle distraction became a gross distraction. My mind noticed it and corrected for it, uh, and. Um, but you didn't notice all of the other stuff that was going on around it. So, with with these thoughts in mind, hold, continue. You as know, you say, you're already doing this. Continue to hold in mind the intention to be aware moment to moment. So, while your attention is stably fixed on on the breath, you should be able to have awareness both of Uh, external sounds and bodily sensations as well as thoughts and uh, emotions and things like that that come and go shifts in your mental state that they're taking place even while your attention is focused. Um, And as I say, that four-step transition, that's really what you're doing in order to make that even more clear the distinction between awareness and attention is that sometimes you deliberately move attention and sometimes you just observe the spontaneous movements of attention. But you're always trying to sustain uh, awareness. And this would be awareness that you're conscious of and that you know uh, it, it, won't, it won't last so long that by the time you're in the third step you will remember particulars of what you had been aware of in the first step and that's all right but you want to remember it long enough in the sequence that uh, it becomes incorporated into the uh, your ongoing experience because metacognitive introspective awareness is going to show for you show you very very clearly how your mind works how your mind reacts to various things, but if you if you don't have access to that information uh, after it's been generated, then it doesn't. Then you don't get the benefit of it. Okay. So I hope this. I hope this helps. Um, yeah. Yes, it's and Good luck with it. Yes. Thank you, Charles. You're most welcome. Um, flow. I'm uh, not sure flow is here. I, I don't see flow. Oh, but, uh, all right, let's go ahead and have a quick look. It's a, what is my opinion of mixing or alternating between different insight practices? Is it better to pick one and stick with it or is it okay to do several ones at the same time? First of all, I'd like to make a distinction between um, Practices as a system of practice that gets labeled insight and um, practices that you can do um, um, that are likely to generate insight. But um, we're not talking about something like practicing the Mahatsi method or doing uh, uh, 10 days or a month of uh, Goenka practice as insight practice. Uh so um, what I'm talking about here, if you look at stage seven on, the practices that I offer you to uh, help uh, to assist in the development of shamatha, these are actually all insight practices at the same time. And they're very likely to give rise to insight. So if you were just following the 10 stages, you, stages, you would find yourself. Uh, doing different insight practices. Now, um, as for alternating between these different practices, yes, uh, particularly if you find the practice is is tending to be very productive for you, either in terms of the development of samatha or in terms of producing insight experiences which could mature into true insight. uh yes, there's nothing wrong with alternating between them. Uh, at this as when you're at the stage of being an adept med- med- meditator. For an adept meditator, uh you know better than any any teacher. Uh there
3: before he starts just to say hello.
0: I'm hearing somebody talking in the background. Um yeah, and An adept meditator is at the stage of, of learning so much about their own mind and they have the sensitivity to recognize a practice that is productive in these ways and, uh, uh, or a combination of practices. A practice that is very productive for a while might cease to be at some point or one that, was, uh, uh, one that wasn't very productive uh, may turn out to be later on. So, uh, by all means, uh, uh, experiment with different insight practices in this sense. But if you're talking about switching between do, uh, doing uh, uh, Mahasi practice in a very strict manner, uh, or Goenka practice in a very strict manner, or even Shinzen's practice in a very strict manner, um, to I, I'm I'm less I'm less certain. That you are going to benefit from uh, doing one one day and doing the other the next, but you seem to be talking about within this, within the same sit. Um, and c- certainly, I wouldn't switch these practices within within the same sit, except in the context the, of the way they're described in uh, the mind illuminated. Uh, Close following is and uh, in stage eight uh, choiceless attention are both um, variants on a Mahasi noting practice and to 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 switch between those kinds of practices even within the same sit uh, I, I I do think is uh, I do think is valuable and if you're an adept meditator it's appropriate um, if you're still between stages one and six you're better off to focus on developing skills Uh, and those practices are all primarily uh, uh, designed to to develop stability of attention and uh, powerful metacognitive introspective awareness doing it by stages and following a natural development and these are the things these are the These are the mental faculties that are going to allow you to uh, achieve insight. Not that you might not experience insight while you're in those early stages. It's not uncommon for people to do so. But um, during those early stages, make it your primary intention to develop these faculties. Then the insights are going to come. They're going to come quickly and they're going to come easily um, because you have you have the mental faculties that will allow you to turn insight experiences into true insight, uh, temporary altered states into permanent traits, things like that, which is what which is what the practice is all about. So, flow, you're not here to tell me whether that was an adequate response or not, but <laughs> I hope it was, and you can let me know subsequently. Uh, Thomas Patrick Bernardes. You know, I think I might, um, Nick, can you make a note of the questions that I'm skipping, but I'd like to answer the questions of people that are here first and then come back to those that aren't here. So uh, Adrian, are you here? Yes. Oh, good. Wonderful. Because I wanted to answer your question. (laughs) You said that everything is mind-generated, which is the truth that you realize with emptiness. In TMI, at the beginning, it is said that we get a direct experience of ultimate truth. What is ultimate truth? If everything we can experience is empty, how can we experience ultimate truth? What can we do to get to this experience? Well, okay. Okay. Ultimate truth is knowing that you don 't know <laughs> um, If I said that in the introduction, people might not read further, but ultimately, yes, when you realize emptiness, then you you realize that the only thing that um, ever happens in consciousness that is not a mental construct is uh uh, some form of cessation uh you know uh when there are no mental constructs and you have a cessation experience that and and you happen to be uh conscious of it i mean a lot of it, it with certain practices it tends to take the form of just a gap an interruption in the in the flow of consciousness or the perceived flow of consciousness but um, sometimes there's the experience of this uh, having been a, uh, you know, what we call a consciousness without an object or a pure conscious experience when a cessation event occurs. But cessation event is the only time the contents of consciousness are, um, <laughs> are not mental constructs. And even, say, the cessation of craving, okay? Um the only part of your conscious experience that is not a mental construct is the absence of craving. you know um, so on an, I had to say ultimate truth is knowing that you don't know is is not quite as uh, as, as glib and uh, simplistic as it sounds. We can know a lot about ultimate reality let's let's say um. Uh, by inference, and we do that um, we you know with the, we learn that everything is interconnected and interpenetrating, and we know that that is even though that is a mental construct we know it 's a mental construct that 's a closer description to whatever the ultimate uh, truth of uh, of reality is um, likewise. Uh, Impermanence recognizing that everything is process and experiencing it as process. Um, So, you have this non separateness, and you have the fact that everything is process, and that everything to which we attribute thingness, its very thingness, is a a mental construct that is being projected onto process in order to make it comprehensible for us. so, uh, realizing just realizing the truth of this is is insight into emptiness, and where it has its greatest value is when you realize that the concept of self and the feeling of self, both of which we cling to so tightly, uh, are mental constructs. That uh, they're not reflections of some uh, reality of some self that you have and that can be lost. Uh, that is born and then that can die that there is no such thing what there is is there is this total interconnectedness uh, there is this process of which you uh, are a part and your parts are a part and everything else and none of it is as distinct from anything else it's your mind and I'm sure uh, another organism's mind and maybe somebody from Alpha Centauri's mind or something like that would organize uh, their perception of, of this interconnected reality in a completely different way. But it would still be empty. It would still be a mental construct. But by inference, we come to understand these, these things. We come to understand that uh, our suffering comes from treating these things as, as though they were reality. And so, when we're talking about, uh, when you realize ultimate truth, uh, what is the ultimate truth that you realized? Uh, it is that, um, it, it is that the, cons- the consensual reality that we live in is a mind-created illusion that there is a much greater reality uh, that uh, uh, you don't fall into the trap of solipsism <laughs> and say, well, I'm, I'm just dreaming this whole thing. I must be Brahma. You know, <laughs> I, I'm Brahma laying here dreaming this whole reality, including myself. Well, uh, that's not gonna do you much good. But um, realizing realizing that uh, that the only thing that your mind can assimilate and work with are the uh, fabrications that it generates from whatever it is that uh, that uh, is going on in this larger reality. Um, and you allow that to happen without believe- believing in it, and you are liberated from the suffering that comes from Believing that that's true, and you cease to inflict the suffering on others that comes from believing that those misperceptions are true. So, that is the ultimate truth that you realize. And even the part about when you realize that you, uh, uh, the more you know, the more you know you don't know. You know, picture it this way you've got this vast expanse of what is, and uh, there's a little circle that represents what you know about it. So the more you know, and the circumference of the circle, that's the interface between what you know and what you don't know. So the more you know, the bigger the circle becomes, and so does the circumference of the circle, and so, so does your knowledge of what you don't know. So the more you know, the more you know you don't know. What's wonderful about that when it comes as a deep spiritual realization in the form of insight and awakening is that. It's a glorious, wonderful mystery that you are a part of, and uh, it produces a, a state of awe, and you can live in that state of, of awe, uh, no longer clinging to the idea that uh, you are somehow going to be able to to grasp this. It's very ungraspability becomes uh, part of what sustains you in an uh, equanimous and uh, uh, noble state of being. You know, excuse me, referring to uh, the, the, the metaphor of the noble uh, to the Aryan, the Buddha used it, but uh, it, it is a very noble state of being. That uh, you dwell in, imbued with equanimity and uh, largely freed from from suffering. So that's that's the ultimate truth we're trying to reach. So does that does that help?
3: Yes, thank you.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's you know it's a terminology, knowing ultimate truth or understanding ultimate reality that is used very commonly. And um, it's either used uh, apathetically, uh, you know, like what is ultimate truth? It's knowing that you don't know. Um, or it's used by people who don't know what it is, but they cling to the, it. I used to, you know, the reason I got into all of this, the reason I went into science, and the reason that I, I went into Uh, spiritual practices uh, and ultimately Buddhism was I wanted to know everything there was to know about everything. I I wanted to know, you know, I I, I wanted to understand uh, everything. I wanted to have uh, God's eye view of uh, reality. And um, at first it was disappointing to realize that that was never going to happen. Um, Almost... I almost made life seem pointless, but then then it shifted and it became wonderful okay so there's no there's no end to what I can discover and so far that is the truth there's no end to my explorations you know uh, and my seeking my explorations uh, they always bring me back to being what I am, a human being in this world uh, with the limitations of a human being, but uh, knowing the place for the first time happens over and over again. Uh, You might recognize my play on uh, 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 Little Gidding, a quote from Little Gidding. All right. uh. Dominic.
2: Hey, hello, Churadaza.
0: Hello Dominic. Good to have you here. Um, you, you say my close friend with Yes?
1: Can I interject for a minute? It might be nice if you turned your the gain on your microphone down a little bit because it's clipping.
0: Oh. Okay. Uh, let me see if I can do that. Without creating a lot of problems here.
1: You shouldn't need to touch your microphone. It's actually, if you, if you go to your screen, or uh, that's probably the, not the microphone gang.
0: Okay, that's the, uh, that seems to be just the volume of the, yeah. of, the, of the earphones.
1: If you go to see that little mute button, there's a little up arrow to the right of it. Um, and if you click on audio options, I believe, um, um, yeah.
0: Mute button. And to the right, yeah, audio options.
1: Yeah. Okay. And then test. Yeah, test computer mic and speakers.
0: Uh, well, it just takes me to a uh, built in microphone. Sorry.
1: Yeah, so if you, yeah. it, should, it should bring up a preference uh, that allows you to turn down the volume on the microphone. And that would be like towards the bottom. And it may, it may be grayed out because it's got automatically adjust microphone settings clicked.
0: Um,
1: Are you seeing that? Be- I,
0: I'm not seeing that. I'm not seeing. I'm seeing select a microphone, a built-in microphone.
1: Yeah, uh, actually, uh, an easier way to get to this is just to go to, to zoom.us and then click on preferences.
0: Sorry, to go to, watch, to
1: uh, uh Up in the upper left, it'll say zoom.us, and below that, it says preferences.
0: Okay. Maybe I'm not seeing.
2: The clipping is not so bad.
1: Hmm. Oh, as we say, okay. we save this audio for forever, and it would be really nice to have the audio quality be as good as possible. But it,
0: yes it would i'm I'm not saying the zoom so, u s so
1: here let me let me just quickly share my screen with you um, so you can see uh, One second, I'm hoping this will actually work um, so uh if you go to wait um, well, if you go to Zoom.us, you'll see preferences. Do you see that?
0: What thing is a map?
1: Well, yeah, but in the upper left, do you see do you see what's in the upper left, or is that not showing up?
0: Oh yeah, Zoom.us. Okay, yes, yeah, so a drop down menu. Yeah. Okay. So that
1: preferences thing should pull up a little window here, and you may have to choose audio from the window.
0: Okay, so I know where to go. Okay.
1: Yeah, and then here's the microphone settings.
0: Yeah, well I recognize the screen, I've seen and gotten to it by completely different means, but all right, uh, so, uh, all right, zoom.us preferences, okay, and built-in microphone volume is, ooh, it's at the top. So how's this? I have brought it down about three quarters. It's better. Is that better? A little more? How's that? Uh,
1: well, don't make it too quiet. But yeah, it's it's. I don't.
0: Is it good right now? Is doing a test right now, and is that too soft? Is it a little. I think that's good. Okay, I'll just keep it there then. Thanks, I appreciate that. Thank you. And hard to interrupt. Yeah, thanks for the patience of the rest of you. Okay, so we were with Dominic, and. My close friend with no meditation experience has depersonalization, derealization symptoms. He currently undergoes cognitive behavioral therapy. I'm aware that such problems might also occur as a side effect of meditation, uh, a.k.a. dark night. Would it be wise for him to practice some form of meditation that are recommended as antidotes for dark night, example, metta, or would it be irresponsible to give him any meditation-related advice as he is already under specialist care? Obviously, I do not want to make him worse, but based on the description of his symptoms, I suspect he might be, in a way, closer than me to realize insights like no-self or emptiness. So, not pursuing this direction could also be a waste of a great opportunity for awakening. Depersonalization, uh, derealization, um, these are most definitely not the same thing, uh, even remotely, as the experience of no self. Um, um, I don't know a lot about them other than the fact that uh, uh, I was physically abused as a child And I learned to dissociate uh, during those periods of of abuse. And that too is totally different than uh, depersonalization. So um, in in answer to your question, uh, I I don't, I I think that um, he needs, you really need to have a fairly healthy, reasonably healthy ego structure in order to um, uh, to realize that it is an illusion and to realize that it is a functional construct that uh, you need to be able to use, just like you need to be able to wear shoes. Or, or Well, maybe that's not a good example, you could go barefoot, but you know. Um, uh, your your ego construct is something that is very useful uh, and necessary. And what we're really talking about uh, uh, with the realization of no self is realizing its complete illusoriness, and uh, realizing that there, that even the experience of separateness is illusion. And hence, the insight into uh, the uh, interconnectedness of everything the emptiness of formations, uh, the that uh, there are no things, only process, only change. Um, these all come together. You can't have a realization of no self until you have these other insights, uh, which is a whole different topic that we could possibly uh, get into some other time. But uh, what your friend is experiencing is... Uh, It's a kind of pathology and I I think should rely on uh, his therapist to deal with these things. I I think doing, for example, doing the the mind-illuminated practices certainly without the intention of having some kind of insight into emptiness would be very valuable. Meta practice would be very, very valuable, um, but um, you say uh, you, you, perhaps you should uh, you should definitely encourage this person to keep keep working very closely with uh, a therapist and um, hope that. Um, Hope that he has good uh, or she has good luck in the near future in uh, uh, working through this. Uh, and really, uh, it could it could actually happen in meditation, but it's more likely uh, either to happen as a result of therapy, uh, e- even if it does happen in meditation, to happen as a result of, of the cognitive behavioral therapy that the person is doing. So um, there's really nothing wrong, nothing wrong with learning to develop stable attention and metacognitive introspective awareness. Uh, that's not going to be a problem. And uh, practice is a wonderful idea. Yes, that's, that would be very good. The dark night is a pathological condition that arises in people who achieve insight, but um, uh, they're not really prepared for it. And um, we don't want to confuse that with the um, so-called dukkhanas or knowledges of suffering, which occur to some greater or lesser degree, uh, regardless of how well the mind is prepared for it, because you're basically giving up the fundamental axioms on which you've based all of your perception and uh, Behavior in the past and replacing them with new ones, and that's not that's not comfortable. So, so you experience the dukkhanas or the knowledges of suffering, which can be summed up as as the period of time prior to realizing uh, the uh, insight into no self, during which you are realizing all of these other insights, and that's a pretty desperate position to be in, to still believe. In your individual separate selfhood, but be uh, in uh, be helpless in this world of uh, interconnectedness, process, uh, uh, emptiness, and that you can't, you don't even really know what's going on. Uh, You're you're just making up stories. Um, Actually, that's that by itself is an insight that a lot of therapy helps people to realize is that, that uh, what they're taking to be reality is just stories they make up. But uh, if you're still attached to being a self and you need your stories to identify who that self is, giving that up is is uncomfortable. That's what the dukkhanas are about. The dark night is when you uh, arrive at that place and you are otherwise unprepared. Uh, you, you haven't worked through uh, the various neurotic, sources of, of clinging and um, it's not the same thing. You would not want a person who is experiencing depersonalization to encounter that insight because yeah, then they're gonna go into, uh, then they're gonna have a dark night experience for sure. All of the fears of loss of self associated with the sense of dying and things like that are, are going to come to the surface. What do you think, Dominic? Does that make sense to you?
2: Uh, Thank you for your wisdom. I just wanted to uh, ask a little uh, question regarding uh, that you said that not only meta, but also the, let's say, standard TMI uh, meditation Mm -hmm. should not make harm. So, for example, uh, getting to stage four, which is not, uh, I think, very advanced. I I am currently at... Stage four, I think, and I am not very experienced. Uh, I have not yet uh, encountered purification, but uh, I expect it can happen. So, mm-hmm. such such a purification process, uh, you think it w- would w- does not have potential to be harmful for a person with with those uh, with those problems, because. Uh, yeah. frankly he, he he was the one who encountered me about meditation and i was um i was very um, cautious about about mm-hmm. encouraging him to do this because of of the, <laughs> yeah the, the the correlation i thought mm-hmm. might be there
0: yes that now that is a, um something that is really quite uh important to be aware of is that Uh, The purification that take place as a result of meditation and happen predominantly in stage four, uh, they also involve things that happen in daily life. Uh, It's described in uh, the uh, uh, interlude on the magic of mindfulness. But stage four can bring things up. And the thing is that uh, meditation is an adequate tool to deal with those things so long as a person can remain mindful. By that, I mean they don't forget who they are now, where they are now, I, you know, here I am sitting in a comfortable room, uh, safe and on a meditation cushion, and these things are arising in my mind. In a state of mindfulness, one can deal with a lot of things. That if one is overwhelmed by memories and emotions and things like that when something comes up, then meditation is not the uh suitable venue for dealing with those things. And yes, you should certainly advise this person of that, that that anytime something comes up uh and they feel overwhelmed by it, they should back away. They can reapproach it later on. But if they find that every time it comes up, uh they're overwhelmed by it, then, then then they should be dealing with it uh, uh, with the assistance of a highly trained therapist. Meditation is not, you know, despite its being so, you know, a, a narrow sliver of meditation called uh, called mindfulness-based interventions is being used very widely in a therapeutic manner. It was never intended for that purpose. It's a necessary part. Of our personal spiritual growth leading to awakening, to deal with a lot of our personal neuroses, and meditation does a good job of that with sort of the average, common, everyday, run-of-the-mill neurosis that most people have. But uh, there are things that uh, meditation, uh, and, and so, you know, that ha- that has to come up and it has to be dealt with in meditation. And if it isn't, of course, that's one of the things that will give rise to the dark night. Uh, if all this stuff hasn't been resolved prior to insight, it will all come at once, uh, up at once, and that's not a good thing. But um, the key difference between achieving a purification in meditation and making a problem worse is if it arises and the person becomes overwhelmed by it. They're overwhelmed by the emotions. Or associated memories, or associated uh, uh, experiences, or, or uh, that e- even though they not be may not be in the form of memories, if they become overwhelmed by it and can't maintain an objective uh, relationship to it, in other words, if they can't be mindful, pay attention to it by and not lose the context of who and what and where they are right now, then then they need to back away, away from it. And if that's persistently the case, they need therapy. So this is the advice that you should be uh, giving to uh, this person that's doing this.
2: Thank you, thank you very much. It was very helpful, helpful.
0: You're welcome. Uh, Kevin Smith, you here? Kevin Hing. Yes, hello. Hi, Kevin. Hey. Hey. So are you familiar with the writings of Bernadette Roberts? Yes, I am. And if so, can you explain the extent to which the progress of your journey of insight into and beyond no-self correlates to the stages of TMI? Uh, Her dark night experiences appear to have been excruciatingly painful disorienting and to have occurred over an extended period of time. Yes, I'm still reading, but so far I have not seen her describe any of the purification Samatha experiences that you have described and incorporated into TMI. Uh, Would you characterize her experience as an extreme example of dry insight, and can you provide some explanation, reassurance, regarding the extent to which the severity and disorientation of her insight experiences can be minimized by following TMI. Uh, yes, I am familiar with that. Very fascinated by that. Uh, it has it has very close correlates to the processes of uh, uh, progressive insight uh, and um, uh, ultimately uh, awakening, the experience of no self, and. Um, as a matter of fact, it's, a, it's an outstanding modern example of uh, what I believe to be the case with all of these spiritual practices, that um, the true spiritual component of any religious system, mystical Christianity is the category that this would fall into, are ultimately leading to the same place. And this is a reasonable assumption uh, if you uh, consider that uh, all human minds are uh, very similar uh, in spite of the huge differences that we're aware of as human beings interacting with each other. There is there's far more similarity from one human mind to another than there are differences. Uh, and that whatever this unknowable ultimate reality is, uh, that we come to know by inference, um, it's it's the same for everyone. So it makes sense that um, that spiritual traditions of all kinds, by whatever means and and uh, whatever set of uh, constructs they use, are heading the same place. And that's one of the reasons that I enjoyed uh, going through all of Bernadette Roberts' writings and. Uh, there, she has made uh, she made some videos. I don't know if they're still available. They're uh, uh, they were at one time, and I, I believe I have them saved. I just don't know where. But I found that very interesting. She followed the path very similar to John of the Cross and uh, Teresa of Avila, uh, and that's because a Christian mystical path and. Uh, it involves a very different worldview than uh, the Buddhist mystical path does. Um, and the, the most painful part of it uh, is where Bernadette Roberts um, and, and John of the Cross both describe this as feeling as though that they had, they had known God they had felt God; that God was within them, and now God seemed to—they uh, they lost that. Um, and this is um, this is an extreme form of the dukanyanas What had to happen was a complete re- reorganization of how they. How they understood themselves, and it was couched not in terms of their relationship to between uh themselves and everything else the way that we do in Buddhism, but it was the primary focus was on uh the relationship between the self and uh and God, and so uh the content of the dukkhanas that they experienced uh, took a different form, but it was the same process going on. That uh, yes, when you know, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I won't go into. I won't try to. I, I could go on and on for a long time, and I'll, I'll try not to on that particular topic. Now, I would agree that uh, the dark night of the soul of uh, both John of the Cross and Bernadette Roberts um, has something in common with what is being now, what, what is happening very widely in uh, with Western practitioners and is being documented by Willoughby Britton and now a few other people. It has a lot in common with that in that their practices didn't provide the opportunity for uh, uh, purifications to take place, and that that this needed to take place before they could achieve the degree of maturation of insight that uh, uh, leads to the culmination of the process. The advantage of something like TMI is uh, that, um, uh, you know, TMI will have to be adapted to fit somebody who is following a Christian mystical path or an Islamic uh, Sufi mystical path or something like that, uh, because it's it's uh, it's based in the worldview uh, that uh, uh, is is common to Buddhism, not the worldview of a uh, deistic, uh, theistic religion, but it can be done. And as a matter of fact, um, I've been working with, and we'll have somebody staying for a month and a half who's uh, a long-term practitioner of uh, contemplative prayer and her uh, uh, teacher in the contemplative prayer practice, her pastor is very interested in uh, this as well and to, in the, uh, finding the ways that uh, that uh, the ten stages of TMI can be uh, assimilated into the uh, uh, contemplative prayer practice so back to to uh, your question of Bernadette Roberts um, she, yes she she did have what would be what we would call uh, legitimately a dark night experience which, was, uh, which, which is what happens when uh, one hasn't had the kind of preparation that is provided that we try to build into uh, uh, TMI in the description of the ten stages. Um, the attachment to self, we try to begin to loosen the attachment to self from the instructions from stage two onwards. Uh, in In many different ways over and over again, and we try to prepare the uh, practitioner uh, in a variety of ways for the other uh, insights to uh, arise and be easily assimilated. So um, you asked, would you characterize her experience as an extreme example of dry insight, and can you provide some explanation well let's let me first deal with that. I wouldn't consider it an extreme example. An extreme example are the kinds of things that Willoughby Britton is writing about. The result in people uh, losing their uh, families and careers, and perhaps spending uh, months or years in a psychiatric hospital. Those are the extreme examples. Uh, Bernadette Roberts was a fairly mild example of um, a dark night in which uh, she It was excruciatingly painful, as you say, but she was still able to, to function. And she didn't sink into the depths of despair uh, and uh, nihilism and things like that. Um, although I think she came close at uh, the moment. So, no. She's not an extreme example. She's a moderate example uh, of the Dark night. Um, regarding the extent to which the severity and disorientation of our insight experiences can be minimized by following the TMI. I think I already answered that. I feel like uh, the whole idea of behind TMI is to prepare the mind in a whole variety of ways to make the transition to insight and awakening as easy as possible and uh, to minimize Uh, exactly those kinds of problems. Um, Of course it all depends on what stage uh, in uh, the practice of TMI that um, that insight arises. If it arises prior to stage six, then um, there won't be the same degree of preparation of the mind. If it arises stage seven, well uh, It can still be a bit rocky, but the further along in the process, the more the so-called dukunyanas become a very uh, short-term experience during which people don't really lose mindfulness. Uh, They may experience some of the same physical symptoms and and difficulty with meditation that is described uh, in the progress of insight dealing with the Uh, knowledge of of suffering, the Dupindanas, but um, uh, it will become a much smoother and easier transition. As a matter of fact, with the proper preparation, uh, this can happen even uh, without the person knowing it, without having some notable uh, experience of uh, path attainment and, and fruition. So I hope that answered your question, Uh, Kevin.
1: Yes, thanks. I think the only other slight question I had, I was wondering when you were reading her accounts, whether there was any sense that you had, whether there was a, how much of what she was describing was the necessary part of that transition, and how much of it was a result of the confusion that she had because she had absolutely nothing to guide her or to go on. Mm -hmm. She writes extensively that she went to the library. There was, other than John of the Cross, um, there was nothing else for her, anything like TMI to help her know what to experience. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, is there-
0: Yeah, well, I I think that was a a major part of it. Now, in one of her books, she does describe uh, discovering Buddhist teachings and finding them at least Somewhat helpful in uh, that she she could recognize that what she was experiencing wasn't unique to herself, um, and and it helped her to understand it a little bit. Um, but yeah, I would say most of it is was due to the fact that she didn't have any guidance. She really didn't have the kind of preparation that um, that she needed, and really. You know when Willoughby Britain asked the Dalai Lama at one of the mind and life conferences why Westerners were having all these what she called adverse effects of meditation, the dalai lama's answer is uh, is that meditation is only one part of the Eightfold path you know there there is an eightfold path and the practicing the path as a whole is um is is really the proper approach, not just doing meditation by itself um the, the path of uh, Christianity uh, does provide a lot of the same things that the Eightfold Path does. I don't think it provides anything near the level of uh, clarity and systematic development that the Buddhist Dharma provides to help somebody make sense of the things that they're going through. So, yes, the isolation that she experienced and... Um, not having anybody else, uh, except, um, you know, what she found at the library to go by, Uh, must've been a really rough time, you know, just really empathize with that. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Is Samuel here? Right here. Oh, great. Okay. Uh, is intent part of the ego self? Or is it something ingrained deep within consciousness, like peripheral awareness? It feels like intent is part of the ego self as we have directed direct control over it. Um, and, okay. Intent is something that is far more deeply ingrained uh, than even peripheral awareness. Um, in the simplest nervous systems, that exist, um, they are manifesting intention. Uh, Now, conscious intention is, of course, not something that a jellyfish experiences. And, um, you know, there there are very simple levels of circuitry in your brain that manifest intention um, uh, that uh, uh, are, are (laughs) <laughs> Far too simple to have uh, anything that even vaguely resembles uh, the kind of subjective conscious experience that, that we do. But the, what we do is we incorporate intention when we're constructing the ego-self. We incorporate intention into that, um, and it's absolutely essential. You f- to see yourself as a self means that essentially there is an observer and there is a, an agency. There's an observation and agency, and agency uh, assumes intention. And so, in the in the creation of an ego self, we we build we, we take all of the various intentions that manifest consciously to some degree or another, and we incorporate them into the ego structure. And we have the illusion that we have direct control over uh, intention. What happens is that we watch the different parts of our mind with different intentions uh, work their way through a situation to where a single intention at least in uh, the best of cases, where a single intention becomes resolved as uh, in the mental construct as, my intention is such and such. Now, in a lot of cases, uh, we will discover uh, uh, that there are still uh, some conflicting intentions involved. Uh, we We make a decision, we act on it, and then subsequently we experience uh, doubt, uncertainty, maybe we should have done something else. But um, these intentions, I can say they they exist at a very simple level, far beyond, far before there's consciousness, and so therefore more are more deeply ingrained than even peripheral awareness, because peripheral awareness is a manifestation of consciousness. But intention does arise into consciousness and it gets incorporated into the idea of the ego-self. So you go on, Samuel, to say, if intent is part of our ego, then it seems like throughout our practice we are using our ego to cultivate certain mental traits, stable attention and mindfulness, and then ultimately achieve the dissolution of it. Now, it's true that in the beginning, we feel like it is our self as an agent that is generating the intention. But that is really similar to the illusion that I just described. Um, What we are seeing is that the experiences that we've had, the things that we've read, the teachings we've heard, the people we've associated with, uh, and the ideas we've exchanged with them, have all contributed to creating a predisposition in us to uh, certain activities. And uh, if you are a meditator, your intention to meditate, and then if you're reading TMI, then the TMI has has directed this intention to more particular intentions of cultivating stable attention and mindfulness, et cetera, and so on. But what you'll notice, especially in the early parts of the practice, there are parts of your mind that have different intentions, and those intentions are in conflict. And that's where it becomes really clear that, uh, if you allow it to, it doesn't become really clear to some people until much later on, but um, if you allow it to, it can become very clear in the first couple of, in, in, in stage two, stage three, stage four meditation, that Hey, these intentions that are arising—they don't belong to me. They're not part of—they're not part of a self as agency. But I have a variety of intentions in conflict with each other, and I'm trying to unify the disparate parts of my mind around these intentions. And yes, I still feel like there's an I that wants that to happen—that's generating that intention. But a little bit later, with kind of wisdom that comes with insight even that disappears and and, uh, there's no longer even the illusion that, uh, I mean, you still have to talk this way, right? You still have to talk in terms of I, me, and mine, and you'll still talk about, you know, my intention is, or my intention was, or things like this, because, you know, what you, what you mean by I and me changes, What what you mean is, is these five aggregates, this, uh, constantly changing process with a collection of mental processes um, has such and such intention, but it's much easier, uh, much less clumsy, to say my intention or I intended or something like that, but you see it and understand it as something completely different. Really, one of the points that I try to make in the overview, uh, try to plant the seeds for and hope that, that they will mature, as the person continues through the practice of TMI is to recognize that all there really is in terms of uh, the this, this source of actions, the source of thoughts and emotions and everything else is intention, and these intentions are constructs that start at a very very primitive level that is not accessible to to us to us consciously at all, but that interact and accumulate until they reach the level of becoming conscious intentions or even unconscious intentions that we can reflect upon and say, aha, There was I was not conscious of it, but there was some part of my mind that was pushing me in this direction. Now it's starting to sound very Freudian, isn't it? Well, that's one of the wonderful things that Freud brought to our understanding of our minds, is that there is this unconscious, that it is vast, that it is powerful, and that it uh, actually has more, con- more control over what we do and what we perceive than our conscious mind does. Uh, and so Freud, Freud didn't get everything right, but he got, he got certain things very, very accurately. And your behavior is the result of many complex intentions from many levels of your mind. Interacting, And you, you're, the part of your mind that is generating your ego construct will incorporate those in. Now, your ego construct doesn't become dissolved in the sense that it ceases to exist because all it ever was was a way of organizing information that was functionally effective and your mind will continue to organize information in a way that's functionally effective. But with the realization of no self, you know that that's what's happening, and you know that there isn't, even though you feel like a separate self, that doesn't change until uh, uh, one of, in the higher paths of awakening. But um, you have this unshakable knowledge and understanding, that, that my ego self, my idea of who I am is a picture my mind is painting. It's taking uh, my preferences and my experiences and my predispositions and those things that would be called my personality traits and so forth, and it's assembling them into a self. And then it attributes to self the um, experience of observation when in fact in the seeing there is only the seeing. And it attributes to this uh, created self the agency that results in uh, not just actions, but uh, at an unconscious level our thoughts and our emotions, And it uh, it, uh, appropriates those into the self as uh, our intentions. So how can something be used to dissolve the very thing out of which it arises? In the case of <laughs> the thing is, when you develop stable attention and mindfulness, uh, and your mindfulness takes the form of powerful metacognitive introspective awareness, you see what's going on in your mind. You see it in such a way that it gives rise to to insight. And as these insights come together, there is awakening from the dream that we live in, that things are in a particular way, to a much more... Uh, accurate perception. So what has been dissolved in this process is the mistaken belief that we are separate selves in a world of separate objects and that our happiness and our suffering are the result of our interaction, interaction between this separate self and this world of other separate entities. So that's what's dissolved. And uh, in a sense it is true that it is dissolved uh, out of of the very thing from which it arises. Uh, This is entirely a bootstrap affair. We start with where we are. We begin to meditate out of desire and out of aversion. We have desire for things that meditation promises and we have aversion to things that are part of our life experience now. We have attachment to a self. We think, uh, what I would like, I would like this self to be uh, awakened or enlightened. I would like this self to be free from suffering. But the thing is, no no self ever becomes awakened (laughs) because there's no self to be awakened. However, an awakened being in the Uh, construction of their ego self knows as some of their attributes that, that they, uh, the, the transparency, uh, the illusory nature of the ego self uh, itself in in itself. So, so in a sense, in in a sense we are pulling ourselves up by our, our own bootstraps and it is the very things it's, it's, it's the, very self-clinging, and it's the very craving that arises out of that self-clinging that actually brings us to spiritual practice. So, isn't that a lovely paradox? And all along the way, as we gradually let go of these things, we're still using the remnants of them to motivate uh, our behavior that will lead to the, elim- the elimination of those very remnants. So, fascinating, isn't it?
2: Yeah. Does that help? Yeah, that helps a lot, thank you so much.
0: Okay. Well, I've gone, I had intended to quit at 12.30 and gone beyond that. John Monroe here?
2: Uh, yes, I'm here.
0: Okay, well, I uh, uh, push the limits a little more since you're here.
2: <laughs> Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to uh, speak with you. I've seen your videos and been enjoying the book, but uh, it's really nice to uh, talk in person.
0: Yes, that's good to be here and good to have this opportunity. I'm uh, glad to have you. So let's look at your question. You studied with Namgel and uh, You you were, you enjoyed and were dazzled by the vast range of practices that he drew from traditions of every different kind. Uh, Yes, uh, I I felt the same way. The wonderful thing about what he did is that it opened our minds so that uh, we were freed from the uh, doctrinaire shackles of any one particular tradition. Now, I'm determined to go narrow and deep rather than broad and shallow, and I'm diving into your approach with enthusiasm. Uh, could you please speak to the relative benefits of the smorgasbord, practice it all, awaken along the way, versus the kaiseki or sushi bar, uh, following one method all the way to awakening, then practice, learn the rest if interested, uh, approach to awakening. well. As I say, one of one of the greatest gifts that I feel like Namjo gave us was to open us up. I mean, he was he was an ordained Theravadan monk who was actually regarded at a very high level in the uh, spiritual hierarchy that defined the branch of Theravadan Buddhism that he was a part of. He was highly acknowledged in that, yet he sought. Uh, reordination in the uh, Tibetan tradition and uh, took the, the name Nam- Namjel Rampuche. He was recognized by uh, uh, the Karmapa uh, as uh, the Tulku of Namjel, uh, but then he proceeded to expand beyond it. His greatest gift to all of us who were, are connected to his lineage is the open-mindedness. To look into other Buddhist traditions, to uh, and to look everywhere. And had I not done that, I could not have uh, succeeded in my practice the way I did. Nor could I have written a book like the T M, like T M I. Nor would I be able to uh, write the book that I'm currently working on, which is about the Dharma and. Uh, you know, I dealt with the meditation type of things. Now I'm going to try to bring the Dharma side of it yes. into it. Um, As far as your question goes, I stayed, I had a core path that I was following, while at the same time seeking in all kinds of other places for something that would help me understand it. And I think that what you will find that if you follow any single path, that kind of narrowness, that, uh, I, I almost hate to say this, but it has happened just as the Buddha predicted. And especially after uh, the Buddha Dharma turned into Buddha, into religion. Uh, I guess the term Buddhism really is a—it's a Western term that was coined during the colonial era. To uh, identify all these people that appeared to be praying to a statue of some guy sitting with his legs crossed. Um, There is no such thing as Buddhism. But what we have nowadays are a number of religions that have developed in different cultures out of Buddhism. And I make a clear distinction between Buddha Dharma and Buddhism. And Buddhism has lost important elements of Buddha Dharma. Uh, sometimes because of incorporating elements of other cultures and other traditions into, uh, into the religion that is created out of, out of the Buddha Dharma. So if you follow any particular tradition narrowly, then you are going to be subject to the gaps and the distortions, the corruption that has occurred. Uh, what we have what is so wonderful about what is happening right now is we have the opportunity to look at all these different traditions and see better see some of the gaps and distortions that um, have arisen in in these different as these different lineages have developed um, with all their various trappings and their borrowings from from other uh, spiritual and religious traditions. Um, I don't think that you would get very far playing the smorgasbord game, but if you played the smorgasbord game, yes, it is possible that uh, awakening would occur somewhere along the way. Um, The current, you know, if if you want to, to see what the smorgasbord game is like, and see what the potential benefits are of borrowing from different traditions, I would highly recommend that you do Jeffrey Martin's uh, a finder's course because that's that's a true smorgasbord, but you very well, in your case, you, you've already been through NamGel's smorgasbord, so you don't need to do that. What you've discovered is that a lot of the components, elements, elements, uh, uh, experiences, uh, states that are characteristic of insight and awakening can be experienced to greater or lesser degree uh, using a, a variety of different techniques. And some techniques are more effective than others, especially for some individuals as compared to others. But the advantage of Staying with any single tradition to some degree is that you have uh, the systematic development, which to me makes uh, uh, the Buddha Dharma superior to uh, to any other tradition, Buddhist or non-Buddhist. You know, at, at the core, all of these different Buddhisms do still have that. Uh, systematic, coherent uh, dharma that the Buddha taught. Um, so if I were going to recommend anything is, yeah, follow TMI. What it is, is it's a synthesis. It's a framework. Uh, it's a framework to, to, to address the commonality of the way uh, our minds can be developed and the commonality of the goals that the different tra- traditions are seeking. And it's, uh, it, it is at this moment, uh, and of course I would believe this, but at this moment what I believe is, is the clearest, uh, organized, systematic path for one to follow. And while following that path, there's absolutely nothing wrong with uh, experimenting with other things. I recommend to my uh, student teachers that when they reach a certain stage in their practice, they go and do some retreats in a Mahasi style uh, or, or Goenka style, or they um, uh, follow the teachings of uh, uh, an Advaita Vedanta teacher, uh, somebody that's uh, teaching non-duality. Uh, go, go, uh, go! Spend a weekend or a week with uh, Adyashanti and things like that because this will help to flesh out uh, uh, some aspects. You know, uh, first of all, there's a limit to how much high as one person could assimilate. And secondly, there's a limit to how much of what I've assimilated that I could express in a single book. Um, in that way, I feel a little bit like you know the Buddha when he was saying, "What I've taught you is like the dirt under my fingernails. What I've what I've learned is like the uh, the earth that we stand on." Um, I, I wouldn't want to put I, I I wouldn't want to sound so proud as to uh, put myself on the same level as the Buddha in that regard. But um, yeah, I learned I learned a lot more than I was I uh, could accumulate or I could uh, transmit to you in a Uh, in a book like The Mind Illuminated. uh, I'd probably have to write 20 books to to do that. But uh, by all means, it is worthwhile to explore uh, the methods of other traditions and use use the 10 stages in TMI as the framework by which you can understand it. Uh, Have a number of student teachers with a strong background in uh, the Mahasi tradition. And what they say is, uh, had, I, had I read this book or had I known these things, I would have made so much more progress, so much more quickly in the Mahasi tradition. But the other thing is they understand what that particular practice is trying to do because it fits into the framework of the 10 stages and the skill development and the, the, uh, the arising of metacognitive Introspective awareness that allows you to see the rising and passing away and ultimately dissolution uh, of, of things um, yeah, so i did did I answer your question uh, yeah, very much so thanks so much all right you're welcome yeah. and uh, gone way over time, but I succeeded in answering the questions of everybody who was here and number of questions of, people that didn't, weren't able to make it today. So I thank you all for coming and I hope you found this valuable and useful. So, look forward to next time. Uh,
2: should you and I talk now,
3: Chilidasa?
0: Sure, or yes, we can.
3: Oh, Okay, so maybe yeah. turn off the recording to... Yeah. Ted, you can stay on the line.
1: <laughs> I was going to say I'm going to take off unless you think I could, should stay, but.
3: Oh. On-